Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Richard O'Connor. He's the author of a book called Undoing Depression, and he has some personal experience with the subject, as well as being an author. So, Rich, thank you for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and um, you know your involvement with depression. Sure describe it you know let me know about your history a bit please yeah well there's really two histories there's a personal history and a professional history professional history is i I can sum up more easily i am master's in social work and a phd from the university of chicago and i've been a psychotherapist for 30 plus years and i've written at this point published five books undoing depression okay Okay, you've done five books, and one of them was Undoing Depression. What, what were the other four, out of curiosity? Rewire, rewire your, how to rewire your brain. But the title is just Rewire. It was the most recent book. It's about four years old. Then there's Undoing Perpetual Stress. There's... What I was going to ask you, actually, as a follow-on is, um, you know, I'm assuming that we were going to cover the topic of one book. But, mm-hmm. you know, given the conditions today, uh, as we're doing this interview, which of your books do you think is the most relevant and which one would you like to go into the deepest? Oh, I think undoing undoing depression is the most relevant. It's just coming out in a totally revised edition. The publication date is September 28th. It's been, um, it's gone through two previous editions. It's been a mainstay in self-help for depression for 20 years. So what are some of the tenets of the book that Well, I think it's more important to note that um, when I was preparing this new revision, I I was really struck by the fact that we're in a crisis of care for depression. Despite all the new medications that are so freely available, the incidence of depression, the rate of depression has increased from like 15 to 22% of the population over the past 10 years. 
the incidence of suicide is, is going up. The incidence of what they call deaths of despair. You, are you familiar with that concept? Deaths from is that like deaths from loneliness or what? Deaths or, from you know, deaths from suicide, deaths from overdose, and deaths from um, cirrhosis of the liver among middle-aged white Americans have increased enough so that the COVID aside, and these kinds of deaths of despair have increased so much that life expectancy has in the in the U.S. has taken a hit. It's really decreased. Um, so in terms of uh, the past 18 months, you know, with this uh, virus stuff, have you seen a jump in depression or different types of depression or suicide, et cetera? Like, what, you well, know, uh, numerically, what's observed? I can't answer that. I don't I don't think the data is organized well enough yet to make that kind of generalization. I certainly would assume that depression has been on the increase. Isolation is a major factor in depression, of course, and I mean that's that's part of the problem. We we're all more isolated now. We we in order to feel halfway decent about ourselves, we really need human contact. We need stimulation, and we're not getting that now. What did you revise in undoing depression? What did you find that was uh, critical to update, and why? Well, in the previous edition, I had been. I had been pretty positive about medication. You know, the newer newer antidepressants, the SSRIs and SNRIs, were relatively new on the market then, and everyone was pretty enthusiastic about their use. But over the past 10 years, there's been a lot of research, on uh, sort of follow-up research on how these medications work. And the truth is, people are discovering that they are only marginally better than taking a sugar pill. And the science has been manipulated by by various means, you know, by excluding the worst cases, by having small sample sizes, by, well, lots of other ways, in order to magnify the effects of these drugs. This is not really new news. Marsha Angel, and former director of editor of New England Journal of Medicine, published an article in the New York Review of Books, two articles, uh, about five years ago, going through the science on, on antidepressants and really debunking how, how effective they are. I, I got to say, don't get me wrong. I, I think antidepressants have a role for people with depression. I, I think they often can be helpful. I just don't think they're sufficient treatment. Uh, I think you really need psychotherapy. They're clinically on people they're on these antidepressants do they stop working after a while like what happens to the people and why is more needed yeah, well prozac poop out has been a, a thing for a, a long time they stop working after a while but they also have serious side effects which really interfere with their effective use they're just well okay you have the chemical imbalance idea right the, the, the idea that we don't have enough dopamine or norepinephrine or whatever it is in our systems and that these medications serotonin these medications will uh, correct what's going on in our brains so that these chemical messengers are can do a more effective job in our brains that's how these drugs have been sold to the public but it's not true there is no evidence for the this idea of the chemical balance imbalance pardon me there's there's just nothing 
no scientific data to support it. So how did these how did these drugs get approved then if, if there was no data to support it? What happened? Okay. It only takes two successful drug trials for the FDA to approve a drug. A a drug company may conduct ten trials with, you know, thirty subjects each, in which they find that in two of the trials a good number of the subjects improved. Those are the trials they'll submit to the FDA. The others all go in the file drawer. They don't get published. Okay. Well, is the FDA's process, in your experience or opinion, uh, specific enough to be able to root out that this was just um, a cherry picking? Or does it still make its way through and turn into a drug that's... I think the drugs have some beneficial effect, often. It's just that it's much less than... Uh, they're promoted to have. And I think you mean, and it's, the real secret of depression is that we all have, you've talked about how depression and anxiety are closely related. They're, they're, I, I really agree. They're really fingers of the same hand. They're both reactions to a hard life, both reactions to stress. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. So you, you were mentioning that the medications you found clinically are not enough. So what no, else no. has to be added to effectively treat someone for depression in your experience? Thank you. Thank you. Depression is a set of bad habits. It's a set of self-destructive habits. We do thing. We have learned to do things that keep us in depression. You know, we all, we all have a set of defenses like denial. We all have these defenses and, and we need them. You know, they protect us from stress and anxiety, but they distort life. They, they give us a distorted picture of what's going on around her as, as in denial. You know, I mean, the alcoholic does not see, literally doesn't see the effects his drinking has on his body or on his loved ones or his job performance, those kinds of things. Same thing with depression. We get we get into negative thinking patterns. We get to expect the worst. We get very down on ourselves. And we don't understand how those feelings and thoughts become self-fulfilling prophecies. And it really takes working with a good therapist or counselor in order to identify those self-destructive patterns and learn different ways of behavior. Now, you know, some people maybe can do it through mindfulness meditation or through reading, but I think in most cases, it really takes psychotherapy. And medication can be a useful adjunct to psychotherapy, but psychotherapy is usually necessary. So what are are some of the uh, common self-sabotaging behaviors that you observed, you know, either maybe in yourself or in patients, what are some of the common ones? How do they manifest? 
internet addiction, overeating, social isolation, gambling, lying, not exercising, overworking, anorexia and bulimia, inability to express yourself, attraction to the wrong people, avoiding the chance to express your talents, uh, self-dosing your medications, not managing money. Procrastination, of course, is a huge one. Yeah. Uh, well, do these, uh, there's a lot of different things here. I mean, do they have yeah. common roots or common ancestors that you've identified? They are ways that the depressed person has learned to make his feelings go away, to, to stifle uncomfortable feelings. But they really, they really end up cutting you off from life. And they, you know, obviously many of them interfere with getting what you want, you know, getting ahead in, in, in jobs or getting, making interpersonal connections. So I guess the common theme is that these are all self-sabotaging behaviors in one way or another. Exactly. And the overriding goal is to not have to deal with someone's emotions or circumstance or relationships. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The, the goal is to avoid reality when, you know, it, 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 we really are better off facing reality, even if it is pretty grim. So what happens when you address, like, let's say someone comes in and they have, a, I don't know, a porn addiction and, uh, you know, they're a smoker, let's say, and that's how they're kind of, you know, avoiding reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you help them address these issues. Do they then turn to other avoidance behaviors on the list or do they, you know, once you address the problem behaviors that someone has, like, do they get better or, you know, do they backslide or again, slide into like another kind of behavior instead to replace it? There's no one answer to that. Uh, you know, Freud long ago taught this idea of symptom substitution that, you know, if you only have a superficial cure, the person will start doing something else destructive. That hasn't really proved to be the case. Uh, but it is true that often people will find another way to shoot themselves in the foot. Often, but not always. So, Are there preferred secondary ways or is it just like a mashup? You never know based on what someone's doing, what their their go-to second behavior will be once they stop doing behavior number one. One pattern is what they call somatization, the use of the body to express feelings. And that's that's one where there often is a lot of symptom substitution. So a person comes in with a mind-body condition like uh, back pain. Um, you know, you get them to physical therapy and uh, they do their exercise program and their back pain clears up, but then they develop a digestive problem. And you fix the digestive problem, and then they develop a breathing problem. There are people like that who use somatization as a as a sort of a defense. It it means I can't be expected to meet the demands of reality. But that's just one pattern, you know. I mean, smoking is a, a good example of something. I mean, you you can stop smoking, and you're not likely to take up another habit just because you've stopped smoking. So is it important to identify if someone has a certain problem and you know, oh, you know, this one tends to lead to other problems, even when you address it versus smoking. Okay. If we solve smoking, they're probably going to be okay. Yeah. Like are there certain, again, avoidance behaviors that tend to lead to other behaviors and ones that are, you know, dead end. Yes, there are, you know, there's been a lot of research on 
trauma lately, I, past 30, 40 years, I shouldn't say lately, not just, you know, PTSD, combat related or rape related, that kind of trauma, but also what they call chronic trauma syndrome. I mean, children who were raised in an abusive environment, children who were raised in an un unloving environment, those kinds of things. Those people really have a hard time uh, recovering because they will, they will often find another way to hurt themselves. Poe, Al, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a short story, uh, you know, 150 years ago called The Imp of the Perverse. And it, it described a man who had, who had done a horrible thing and had gotten away with it. And he, he was doing fine and he was fat and happy. But something made him confess. And it, the story is very effective because it's told from the man's point of view about how he just could not sit on it anymore. He could not live with the guilt of having fooled everyone. So he was felt this need to confess. And I think that imp of the perverse is a very good metaphor for a lot of depression. There's something within us that wants to hurt us, wants to make that wants to destroy us, wants to make us fail, wants to make us unhappy. That's where psychotherapy really gets interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's like the telltale heart. Yeah, that was different. You know, that guy, like the heart kept beating. And yes, you know, I guess it was like a metaphor for his consciousness. So maybe Edgar Allan Poe had a, I guess he had a lot of things on his mind that he wrote stories about to get out. That was his way of coping. Well, he did. I mean, if you know anything about his background, he was he was an orphan. He was he was taken in by a very pompous and successful man who made Poe feel like he really owed everything in life to to him, his adopted father. And Poe really just sh kept shooting himself in the foot. He flunked out of military academy. He flunked out of the University of Virginia. And you got, kind of got the idea that he was he was angry at this guy who was so proud of everything he'd done to help poor Edgar, poor little Edgar. Edgar was going to show him, I don't need your help. Interesting. Okay. Well, with, um, I guess going back to, you know, more present day with your yeah. Undoing Depression book, uh, you know, you said it was like your number one. Um, it's been out for a while and now it's been revised. Yeah. What kind of feedback have you gotten from people maybe that surprised you that, that have read the book? Well, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback. Great many people feel that they've been helped by the book. But I think one of the things that surprises me is I I do talk about my own personal story in, in the book. I identify myself as someone with depression. And my mother took her own life when I was 15. And that's that's a tough thing to live with. You know, you you question, why did she abandon me? Did she really mm -hmm. love me? You know, what was wrong with me? What was wrong with her? Do I have it in do I have that same self-destructive thing in me? It's it's not something you get over with easily. But 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 I was really touched by how many people have gotten in touch with me to, to tell me how moved they were by my own story. I, okay. I I think I think it's really very true that a lot of the best therapists, psychologists, researchers, you know, they have their own personal motives for, for getting into this field, but we're not supposed to talk about it, you know, which, you know, I, okay, I don't want to burden my patients with my problems, but if I write a book, I can talk about it. 
I, I think it's unfortunate that most of more of us aren't more open about our own personal struggles. Struggles. Kay Jamison is is one. She's she's been she's a very respected researcher, and she's been open about her struggles with manic depression. But there's not enough of us. What what did people say that they found helpful about the book? What in particular, uh, you know, what theme or pattern seems to have come out? I think the theme of two things. One is learning mindfulness. I think, I mean, mindfulness is all the rage now, but I think I was a little ahead of the curve in teaching how it can be really useful, especially when we're trying to get underneath our own defenses and see the patterns in our own behavior and understand why we do things that don't turn out right. Just, you know, backing off and detaching ourselves and observing ourselves with what I call compassionate curiosity can really be a way of learning to sort of correct yourself, your your behavior gently, you know? I mean, depressed people are too hard on themselves and you feel like you you got to make yourself over from the ground up. My, learning mindfulness is just a very gradual, easy way of learning to observe yourself with a little bit of distance and detachment and, and kindness, like I said. Another thing I think that people uh, find of value is that it's very concrete, you know, although, you know, I talk about psychology and medication and defenses and all that. I really feel like people need concrete advice about, about what to do and what not to do. So the book is full of exercises and lists and, you know, how to recognize depressed thinking what I call the skills of depression, the, the ways we we keep ourselves depressed, the bad habits that we have to break, and advice on how to break them and what to do instead, that kind of thing. People have really appreciated that. So what's, what's new about the revision? What did you have to uh, update or change? Well, unfortunately, like I said, we did to de-emphasize the role of medication and, and re-emphasize that people are can't rely on that and, and that they really have to mm-hmm. take themselves in hand. Hopefully, maybe through the book alone, or maybe with the help of of a good therapist. Other things I I, I really needed to reemphasize were sort of the the self destructive thinking habits of, of of depression. You know, I mean, people with depression tend to think that they tend to think that things are permanent, pervasive, and and all over the place. They tend to think that things are rotten. Things will always be rotten. And it's my fault that things are rotten. But those those are distortions, of course. I mean, a lot of things are rotten, but not everything is rotten. And not everything yeah. is my fault. But depressed people are really good at self-blame. Well, um, how does that self-blame manifest? Is it literally voices in their head saying, you idiots, or you this? Or, oh, yeah. You know, what, what have you observed? I find that if, if I get people to sort of tell me what are the exact thoughts in their head when they wake up in the morning or when they're going to sleep or when they um, make an error of some sort there's there's some accusatory voice i call it the inner critic the, uh, this voice says you know you you bum you idiot you'll never do anything right you you can't do anything right you you'll always be a screw up and that's that's a very powerful voice and it really you can't argue with it it's not it's like the don't think of a pink elephant idea, you know, I mean, once you think of a pink elephant, you can't make yourself stop thinking about it. What you have to do is 
start thinking about something else. So when you hear that self-critical voice, you got to change the subject. You got to go out for a walk. You got to turn on some music. You got to call up a friend. You know, you, and it's amazing how often little concrete steps like that will make the voice go away. Doesn't always work, but it often works. And that's pretty good. Where do scientists think the voices come from? How do they manifest and why do they manifest as voices? You know, I really, that, that, the answer to that question really depends on what branch of science you're coming from. You know, cognitive psychologists tend to believe that these are uh, sort of the internalized uh, lessons of experience. Freudians believe it's superego. There's no one place it comes from. It's just, you know, very, very common. A lot of people can identify with that critical voice. What things have you advised that help quiet the voice or get rid of the voice? Can you get rid of it or can you only quiet it down? Can you manifest other voices that are helpful to counteract it? Yeah, you can certainly learn responses. And that's that's one area where cognitive therapy is, is helpful. You can learn sort of countering thoughts. You, you know, when when your voice is telling you never be good enough, you can argue with that logically. You you can say that, you know, that's impossible. That There's not enough evidence to, to support the idea that I'll never be good enough. And in fact, if I look back, here are times when I was very good, when I did the right thing. So, I mean, that's one way that's that's really helpful is to just not get stuck in that voice, but to detach. And that's what mindfulness helps with. Detach a little bit and remind yourself of experiences that disprove the voice. One thing, one thing I, I like to advise people to do is when they're going to bed at night, just try to think of three good things that happened during the day. And they can be very simple things like, you know, had a good cheese sandwich for lunch, or mm-hmm. I heard my favorite song on the radio, or my wife and I went out to a movie and we had a great time, or I had the wonderful conversation with my kids or I achieved something at work, but it can also be very little. And this focus on positive really helps distract yourself from all the negative input that that critical voice inside your head wants to feed you. As someone goes through therapy, what happens to this critical voice? Does it, you know, what do they report? Is it diminished? Does this still come up, but they're able to talk back to it and say no and correct it? Or like, what what do you observe happens over time when someone gets healthier and, you know, whatever that means mentally? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm afraid the voice never does go away. But as people get healthier, they learn to recognize that this voice is a distortion. And very often the therapist serves that role. So the therapist will challenge those kinds of negative beliefs. Are you really such a total screw up? You know, what about this or what about that? Or what about that time you did something wonderful? The therapists, you know, sometimes they talk about therapy as a form of reparenting. You don't have to go through a rebirth experience to find the therapist's voice in your head as sort of a positive, affectionate, respectful view on yourself that can replace all the negative thoughts you've learned. Should people designate someone to be their anti-voice voice, or is it best that they do it themselves, you know, from inside their own head? 
uh, is there any recommendations or guidance around you know voice control or whatever you want to call it that's a good question i th- i think that anybody in an intimate relationship can designate their partner to serve that purpose for them and just just to say you know i, I have this problem with these tormenting inner, inner thoughts and you know I, I needed to talk it out with you and if the person really loves you they're going to obviously see how you're being too hard on yourself and they're going to point out how, how you're different than what you think you are and i mean that's one of the major functions of a good relationship this kind mm-hmm. of positive feedback what if you're having a day where the voices are really loud and insistent Versus a day where they're not so bad. You know, what if you're just not able that day to, to really manage yourself and the voices are just so loud, you can't do anything about them. You know, is, are there backups? Are there contingency plans? Like, you know, has anyone again gone in deep and said like, all right, when, when you're in this state and the voices are like this, then it's really better to have an outside person speak to you because they're not in the center of the storm and you are mentally, you know, or I like, I guess again, is is there is there anyone that's talking about what I'm just made up as like voice management or, you know, keeping the voice from uh, really making you hurt yourself or making a bad decision or screwing up a relationship or something? That's another good question. I I think I think unfortunately, contrary to the popular image that you can take a pill and be over with depression in a few months, depression is a recurring and remitting disease. It once you've had a really severe episode of major depression, you're going to be vulnerable all your life. So you do have to have strategies for how to cope with it when it, when it occurs. One of the, why would you, why, why would you be vulnerable by the way? Like once you have a, a, a major episode, scientists disagree on the answers to that. I can't tell you. It just, it, believe me, it happens not to, not to everyone. I mean, there, there are a lot of people uh, who have a, a pretty severe episode and, and do recover with and don't ever have to look back. But for most people, unfortunately, there are going to be further episodes. But so so you need strategies for how to cope. One of the one of the best strategies is just to accept the fact that it's a it's a it's a it's a struggle. It's a long struggle, and you're going to have bad days, and maybe maybe you're going to have a day where the bear eats you instead of you you eating the bear, you know, that joke. And maybe the, the only thing you can do is go to bed, read a good book, watch a great movie on TV, and get through it with, with the idea that tomorrow is going to be a better day. And often tomorrow is a better day. But that's not the only strategy. I mean, the, the other things you can do are really talk it out with people who are close to you. Uh, your therapist or loved ones or any or and distract yourself do something that you know will make you feel good do something productive do something you'll feel proud of you know call up somebody who's worse off than you do than you are isn't that just commiserating though no no call up your buddy who you know has, has got a bad case of the blues and say let's go out for a drink let's go to a movie let's let's hmm. Let's distract ourselves together. Right. I, okay. Of course, sometimes you know you do find other people who are as equally miserable as you are, and you can get into just sharing sob stories, and that's that's really not productive. So you said the uh, end of September, your new version of Undoing Depression is coming out. 
Right. And it's going to be available what, on Amazon and is it audiobook or how is it available? Amazon audiobook, um, your and your corner bookstore. I got to plug your little bookstore coming out from Little Brown yeah. September 28th. Have you developed any like workbooks that go along with the book? So if people can't, you know, not everyone can see you and get help from you mm-hmm. if you're even doing clinical stuff anymore. So people read the book, like, again, have you made any workbooks that go along with it where people can, you know, ask themselves questions or fill in, you know, information about how their day is, like a, an emotions diary? Are there any ancillary tools that come with it? That may be the next project. I'm, I'm working on that. But there is a lot in this book that provides exercises. For instance, I mean, one of the major tools is what I call the mood journal where I just ask you to observe whenever you have a change in mood. It could be from bad to good or good to bad. And observe what's going on around you at at the time and observe what's going on inside your head, you know, uh, any any particular thoughts or dreams or memories or something like that. Because one of the problems with depression is that people often feel like it just comes out of the blue. Uh, You know, I don't know why I just woke up feeling this way but i really believe it doesn't come out of the blue that there's always a trigger it's just that we get good at not seeing the connections between what's making us upset and and our our resultant mood change so there's a lot of little tools like this in in the book about how to observe yourself better uh, uh, there's a guided meditation exercise that I think is very, very good. Uh, there's a section on communication, uh, healthy communication and relationships. A lot of little exercises like that. And how much work, honestly, have you seen does it take for someone to, you know, if someone's like very depressed quite often or, you know, they've had it for years to get themselves to the point where like they can, you know, I'm sure they're not gonna, just going to get rid of it, but they can control it. You know, they've learned how to talk to themselves, talk themselves out of the hole. They can Mm -hmm. function, they can live, they can maintain relationships. Like how long does it take someone to get from a state where they're just, you know, a mess to uh, a functioning state? Is it a lot of work? Yeah, it can be a lot of work. I think really people can see tremendous progress in just a couple of months. You know, they they may not be totally out of the woods, but they Mm -hmm. may feel hope sense that they're not as depressed as they once were just a few months ago. I mean, you know, depression is really the loss of hope. And if you just get, you know, follow some of the exercises in the book or get into therapy or do something to help yourself, you, you start to realize that you can help yourself and you can have hope and, and you don't have to assume that you're doomed to feel this way for the rest of your life. Maybe it's like the old expression. There's always hope if you have water and soap. Yeah. Well, very good. Um, okay, Rich. So undoing depression. Again, can you just restate what's the release date? Um, this is going to come out right at, right near the release date. So what's the release date? The, okay. Yeah. Very good. September 28th. All right. If people want to get therapy directly from you, can they do that? And if so, how do they reach out? Well, I have a website. It's undoingdepression.com. Okay, same as the book. I'm also listed on the Psychology of the Day therapy directory, which is the way a lot of people during COVID are are finding therapists uh, nowadays. Oh, really? Okay. But it it doesn't have to meet me. There there are lots of good therapists around there. Um, And one of my practical tools is 
advice on finding a good therapist. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yep. Well, very good. Well, Rich, thank you for coming and sharing your story. I know, you know, it sounds like a very difficult one, but you're not only overcoming in your own way, but you're uh, helping a lot of other people. So thank, thank you for you, what Rich. you do. And I encourage listeners to, to check out your books. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.